Luke 10, verse 38. This is God's word. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. There are many things I think we can learn from this passage of Scripture. I think it's especially relevant at this time of year, this September, which to many of us often feels more like the start of the new year than January does, Um, especially those with kids as school kicks off. There's a new season of busyness. Events and activities that were put on hold during the summer are now back in full swing. Our lives seem to increase in busyness at this time of the year. Some of us make little September resolutions to try and maybe be more organized or keep our calendar or planner a little bit better. Uh, You might try to try a new tool, an electronic app, planner, something to manage your time and make sure that you're getting all the things done that you need to get done. And I think in a sense, in this passage today, what we see and what I want us to find is a tool. A tool that comes from this passage which will help us to manage our time and priorities. And the tool's not a new app or schedule or planner, but the tool I want us to come away with is a question. And the question comes from the Lord's commendation of Mary. And the question is just to reflect to ourselves, what is that good part? Or as another translation might say, what is the good portion? What is the good part? What is that good portion? And am I choosing, in my life, day by day, am I choosing the good portion? The good portion is in the story, it's what Mary chose. To sit at Christ's feet and hear his word. To listen to his teaching. We need to remind ourselves that this is the good portion. And that we need to be choosing it. In our world of busyness and distractions... We need to be stirred up by constant reminder to remind ourselves what is good, what is true, and what it is that we truly ought to be seeking after. With that said, let us look more closely at this passage. It starts in verse 38. It says, Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village. Uh, Who is the they? Uh, This is most likely Jesus and his 12 disciples. Uh, They've just... Come, they're traveling to Jerusalem. So this is the they who are going along, Christ and his disciples. And they entered into a certain village. This village, we can be fairly certain, is that of Bethany, which is only about two miles from Jerusalem. And this is awaiting the time from when Christ will actually have that final entrance into the holy city. We're told that a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. This is Martha of uh, that well-known family with the two sisters and the brother. Martha, 
Mary, and Lazarus. Lazarus isn't mentioned in this story. We're not sure why, but the focus is on Mary and Martha. This is likely before Lazarus died, that famous story in John chapter 11 where Lazarus dies and then Christ raises him back to life. Um, This is a well-known family with a few stories about them. Christ seems to have significant interactions with them, um, and they build a close relationship Uh, And in our passage today, this is quite possibly the first interaction Christ has with this notable family. And we're told that Martha received him into her house. And I just think it's interesting at the start, we can see a picture um, that a relationship with Christ starts by welcoming him into your house. Uh, That famous verse in Revelation 3 verse 20 Christ says to the church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And what a beautiful picture of fellowship with Christ, a relationship with Christ that starts where he's welcomed into your heart. You open the door of your heart to Christ through repentance and faith with the Holy Spirit unlatching those strong bolts of sin and blindness that kept us from him. And if you've opened your heart to Christ, you will recognize that he has come in and become your friend. And you'll know something of what it means to sup with Christ, to commune with him. A beautiful picture we see even every time we take the Lord's Supper, one with another, the picture of intimacy and closeness that we get to eat with the Lord of the universe. And even in a physical sense, Christ was friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We're told in John 11.5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them even as friends on a human plane. Um, Christ tells those around him, he said, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. He called Lazarus his friend. And famously, when Lazarus died, we're told that Jesus wept. And those around then said, Behold, see how he loved him. To be a friend of Christ, to entertain and serve the Lord, is such an amazing privilege. So don't miss the opportunity. If you don't know this truth, what it means to be a friend of God, hear his voice, open your heart to him, repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart, but come to him wholeheartedly. Uh, Someone who came to Christ wholeheartedly was Mary in this story. We're told in verse 39 that she, that is Martha, had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. (coughs) We see Mary here. She wanted to hear the teaching of Christ. Christ was becoming very well known. He was a famous traveling preacher drawing many crowds in the thousands. And so, of course, it makes sense. Mary wanted to avail herself of this opportunity to hear this amazing, famous, traveling prophet. Uh, To sit at the feet is a Jewish idiom for the role of a student. Like we're told when Paul says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. It's a picture of discipleship. It's a posture of humility. You are sitting at the feet of the teacher who's going to speak to you. You're looking up into his face as he's teaching. You're there. You're ready to learn. 
Uh, if you're a teacher, you know that this is a good posture. You want the eye contact. You want people looking at you. When everyone's distracted and looking away, that's not the posture of a student. But this is the posture Mary takes. Um, and this is really the posture we take every Lord's Day. As we come, we've gathered together, and we want to sit at Christ's feet and hear his word. Because we want to humbly admit that we need to be taught. We don't know it all. We haven't arrived. And Christ is the great master with all the wisdom. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid in him. So we come eager. We come attentive. Have you come attentive today? Eager to hear the word of the Lord. And it's not just on the Lord's day. It's day by day we want to take this posture of humility to sit at Christ's feet. And amazingly, this is the posture Christ himself took in his earthly ministry, setting an example for us. We're told prophetically in Isaiah 50, verse 4, this is speaking of the servant Christ. It says, The Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He waketh morning by morning. He waketh my ear to hear as the learned. Christ is saying that day by day, morning by morning, the Father awoke him, and his ears awoke to hear from the Father, to hear his Father's will, to receive, to hear as the learned. And if Christ needed to daily listen to the Father, how much more do we? How much more do we need to take this posture of humility and turn our ear to God daily to hear what he would say to his servant? And this is the opportunity Mary saw to listen to Christ's preaching. And so should we. Because where can we go? Christ. Christ alone has the words of life. But not everyone took a veil of this opportunity. Martha, Martha, we're told in verse 40, was cumbered about much serving. And she came to Christ and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And I think in our familiarity with this story, we kind of lose the impact of what's actually going on here. Um, Of course, in a sense, you know, there are 13 young men at her house. If you've ever fed 13 young men, you know that's no easy task. And especially in a day where there's not um, modern ovens, microwaves, fridges, all these things that make food preparation a lot easier. And she is understandably very distracted with trying to prepare for her guests. And she's getting upset her sister isn't helping her, which I think we can identify with in a sense. But we miss this fact that if you imagine yourself in this position, if you have maybe a pair of sisters here, you could imagine you're serving a meal and your sister's not helping you. What most of us, I would think, would do would go to the person and talk to them quietly, be like, hey, could you come and give me a hand in the kitchen? Could you go... I'm needing some help. But instead, she goes to her guest. Imagine you were hosting a famous preacher in your house, and you go to the preacher and say, hey, my sister's not helping me. Can you tell her to help me? That's, like, very rude. That is not something you want to do. It's, it's quite offensive when you think about it. It's ruthless. It's prideful. It's a drawing attention to oneself. And it's almost like she's trying to exert her superiority over Mary before Christ. Uh, I think, and this is a bit of speculation, but I think it seems like Martha's wanting to be noticed and commended by Christ. She wants Christ to rebuke Mary for her laziness, 
and commend her for her diligent service. But what happens? We know the exact opposite. Christ rebukes Martha and commends Mary. But even in Martha's fault, Christ is gentle with her, and he responds in verse 41. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful, which we could translate as anxious, and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. Now, what exactly is Martha's fault? I've heard this story discussed at times and different preachers, and they try to give Martha a break. Kind of like, oh yeah, we're all like Martha. Like, she was just trying to do the right thing. She didn't really need to be that rebuked by Christ. So what exactly is her fault? Because we can see there is something good with trying to show good hospitality. And I think there's nowhere better to go than to uh, our very own John Calvin in his comments upon this verse, which many other later commentators follow. He says that, Though the hospitality of Martha deserved commendation and is commended, yet there were two faults which are pointed out by Christ. The first is that Martha carried her activity beyond proper bounds. For Christ would rather have chosen to be entertained in a frugal manner and at moderate expense than that the holy woman should have submitted to so much toil. You see, what he's saying is Martha didn't need to pull out all the stops. She didn't need to try to impress her guests with extravagant displays when lesser would have done. She didn't need to cumber her about with so much serving that she missed the opportunity to hear Christ's word. He continues that the second fault is that Martha, by distracting her attention and undertaking more labor than was necessary, deprived herself of the advantage of Christ's visit. The excess is pointed out by Luke when he speaks of much serving. For Christ would be satisfied with little. It was just as if one were to give a magnificent reception to a prophet and yet not care about hearing him. But on the contrary, to make so great and unnecessary preparations as to bury all the instruction. Again, imagine yourself in a similar scenario. You are hosting maybe one of your favorite preachers. Uh, I imagine some of us hosting Paul Washer at our homes. And you have this preacher over for the evening or a day, and then you're talking with a friend the next day, and you say, hey, I had Paul Washer over, and they say, great, what did you ask him? What did you learn from him? And you respond, oh, I don't know. I didn't ask him anything because I was just serving. And you'd be like, what? What are you thinking? You had this opportunity to talk to this wonderful, gifted person, and you missed it? Do you really think they needed to be entertained with your fanciest of fanciest goods, all that you could do so that you missed this? And how much more when it's the Lord Jesus Christ in your very home and you don't listen to his word? Martha didn't get her portions right. Too much serving, not enough Christ. Not enough Christ. And it's not that her serving was wrong. In and of itself, serving can be a good thing. And I think we learn here, we need to understand that it's not just our sins that keep us from going to Christ. It's even those lawful pleasures of life that can keep us from Christ, whether it be media, sports, entertainment. Though these things can keep us Christ, and they do. But for us, it can even be the really good and right things in life, like working hard in your career, caring well for your family, 
studying hard for your education, even serving in the church. These can all become anxious cares that distract us from hearing Christ's word, from the one thing necessary. And Martha wasn't just serving some guests. She was actually serving the Lord Jesus Christ, which we generally think would be about the best you could get. But she missed the fact that Christ didn't come to be served, but he came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, to speak the words of life. And we need to be aware how all these little things in the world, all these things of daily life, can all come and distract us from how we hear Christ and receive of him. Uh, We know famously in that parable of the soils, about the thorny soil, we're told uh, that that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Cares and riches and pleasures are not necessarily sins. These could be lawful things, but these have such a great tendency to choke out the word of Christ. How often... Do we come and hear God's word preached and immediately our thoughts afterwards are drawn into other things? That word's not going to bear great fruit in our souls. Even in our own Bible reading, private devotions, if we immediately are drawn into, swept into all the other things of life, that word is going to bear very little fruit. It's when God's word is meditated on and cultivated, watered, tended, that's when we will bear much greater fruit, when the soil is soft in our hearts towards the Lord. Uh, J.C. Ryle has some helpful thoughts on this warning. He says that the fault of Martha should be a perpetual warning to all Christians. If we desire to grow in grace and to enjoy soul prosperity, we must beware of the cares of this world. Except we watch and pray, they will insensibly eat up our spirituality and bring leanness on our souls. Again, it's not often our flagrant sins that quench our life in Christ and our hearing of his word, but it can be an inordinate attention given to lawful pleasures, a disproportionate amount of time given to worldly cares, even good ones. And this is the tricky part for all of us. It's difficult to discern such things. Again, Ryle, he says... But it seems so right to provide for our own. It seems so proper to attend to the duties of our station. And it's just here that our danger lies. Our families, our businesses, our daily callings, our household affairs, our interaction with the society, all, all may become snares to our hearts and may draw us away from God. And so I think in a sense, as we're looking at our portions, we need a bit of a spiritual diet checkup. And we know that if you want to be healthy, you need to have proper proportions. Um, I'm no nutritionist. You can put your nutritional opinions to the side, but we know that things like sweets, junk foods, are not necessarily going to damage your health in small quantities. We have to keep proper proportion in our foods. You have to have a proper amount of fruits and vegetables, proper amount of this and that. Some people argue about what the proportions are but we recognize that we need a balance and moderation in our diet. And do we not need the same thing in our spiritual diet? The problem is is that the easy, sweet things of this world that give quick satisfaction 
to ourselves are the things that will eat up our spiritual health. We need to give time to chew on the nourishing words of the Lord that our main diet not get crowded out by lesser, less nutritional things. Ryle, uh, he gives us counsel to mentally write poison on all temporal goods. Used in moderation, he says they're blessings, for which we ought to be thankful, but permitted to fill our minds and trample upon holy things, they become an inevitable curse. Therefore, we need to watch our lives, our hearts, and our priorities. And as Calvin says, we need to pay proper attention to order, lest what is accessory become our chief concern. And like I started off saying, I think this is the usefulness to us in this story. It's a tool for managing our schedules and our priorities. God's word is eminently practical. Each one of us needs to examine our hearts to see what is crowding out the word of God. We need to examine our proportions and the time we allot to even the good things in life and ask ourselves, am I choosing the good portion? Are we choosing the good portion? And if we want to be people that choose what is truly good, we do need to be willing to pull away from the less necessary to make room for the more necessary. We need to be able to trust Christ with the things that we even leave undone. Because we can recognize that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, he gives to his beloved sleep. We don't have to be the ones to complete everything, to make everything right in this world. We can give our time our best to God and trust him with the rest. And really, what what is this good portion? We've talked a lot about it. What is the good portion? Well, it's what Christ commends, where he says that Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. What does it mean to choose the good part? Uh, If you'll permit another food illustration, um, a connoisseur of fine foods will pride themselves on properly valuing what is actually valuable. Uh, even, and sometimes you might have a church potluck at times, and let's say you have steak, and then all the little kids go and they eat the hot dogs, the lowest quality meat, because they haven't had discerning enough taste buds yet to recognize the value of the steak compared to the hot dogs. And we need to leave room for what is actually the finest, the most valuable, the good foods. Um, I made this mistake one time at an, at an Italian wedding. I was with a friend helping film a wedding, and they feed the videographers, and they start bringing out the food. We have a salad, which was quite wonderful, finished the whole thing. They had all these plates of breads, which were also very good, a big pasta dish. And I'm like, this was a wonderful meal. I am so full, this is great. But then they brought out the big steak meal. And I said, I didn't know there was steak coming. I don't have room, could only eat about half the steak. But then to make matters worse, they brought out the lobster after that, and I couldn't even have a bite. And as silly as this kind of sounds, though it is a sad but true story, this is what we do with our lives. We fill up on the cheap stuff, the breads and passes of this world that are abundant. They come at us from all angles, and the world wants to give us it first. Fill up on this, fill up on that, so that you don't have time for the choicest portion. And what is the choicest portion? 
It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the greatest value. As it says in Matthew 13, 42, Christ compares the kingdom of heaven. He says, it's like unto a treasure hidden in a field that when a man hath found, he hideth and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. Christ is like the diamond in the world of lesser metals. He's the choicest portion. But since the fall, we've had a problem with our taste buds. We don't naturally recognize Christ as being infinitely more valuable than the things of this life. We're so prone to enjoy such fleeting temporal delicacies. We misconstrue the value of worldly things all the time, every single day. And so is our primary focus on the earthly or the heavenly, the temporal or the eternal? Does the way you live your life and your daily routines reflect to those watching that Christ is your treasure or something else? Again, we learned earlier from the example of Christ and the prophets how he awoke daily to hear the Lord's word. And again, we hear of Christ typically in Psalm 16, verse 5, which says, and this is speaking of Christ, says, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. You see, the Lord was Christ's portion. Christ chose the Lord daily, always putting him before his face. So how much more do we need to have the Lord as our portion to keep a constant sight of him, to learn of him, partake of him, delight in him day by day until we can say and truly say along with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not just my portion in the morning, not just my portion on the Lord's day, but my portion forever, forever and always. Christ is the good portion. So in application, I know we've been applying along the way, but I want us to look a little bit at how those of us who are like Martha's can learn to be a little bit more like Mary. And maybe someone would respond, well, what about those who are too much like Mary and need to be a little bit more like Martha? Um, I've never met such a person that worships the Lord too much. I think generally our fault is the other way. Uh, John Calvin does um, throw quite some heavy stones at the monastics that did cloister themselves off from the whole world to have spiritual duties alone, and he considered them lazy, abominable. They would often even beg for money, but I don't think that's any of our problems. I think generally we need to go the other direction. We need to see the primacy of worship. That's a picture of what Mary's doing here, sitting at Christ's feet, hearing his word. It's a picture of communion with Christ. Sitting at his feet, listening to him, coming into his presence, quieting our souls, listening intently to him. And as we're asking ourselves whether we're choosing the good portion or recognizing the good portion, reflecting on our life of worship can be a helpful gauge or guide to take our spiritual temperature. And we'll look at this briefly in just three areas, three spheres of worship. Family worship, corporate worship, private worship. First, corporate worship. As we're examining ourselves 
We come to God's house to sit at Christ's feet and listen to his teaching, to gaze up on his beautiful face, to petition God through him, sing to him, see him in the sacraments. And our love of of corporate worship um, can be a good heart check for us because it's not just our attendance that's enough, but it's our heart engagement. Do we truly engage our hearts as we sing? Do we truly pray along as the minister prays? Do we listen intently to try to grasp that one word that the Holy Spirit might be speaking to our hearts? Do we love to gather with his people? Yes, worshiping on your own is good, but to worship together, one family of God united, singing the praises of our creator ought to delight us. Secondly, family worship. Now, like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we can say that welcoming Jesus into your home is good. And I know many of you have welcomed Christ into your homes. But the question I want to ask is, that we've welcomed, once we've welcomed Christ, what do we do with him there? Do we actually avail ourselves of him? Or would it be kind of like often we invite guests over? And could you imagine if you invited guests over and you didn't interact with them? You said, oh yeah, come stay with us, but do your own thing. Stay in your own room. We're probably not going to talk to you. And often that's how we treat Christ. We know he's in our home. He does dwell with us, but we don't speak with him. We don't discuss his word together. And what could be a better way to show our priority of choosing Christ as a good portion in our families than listening to him together, opening his word together, discussing it together, and praying in response? the beauty of family worship, showing to our children and each other the value of the centrality of Christ in our home. And as we're told in Deuteronomy 6, that it's not just one formal act, but the the commandments need to be on our hearts to talk of them when we sittest in the house, when we walkest by the way, lying down and rising up. This needs to be all of our life. To have Christ in our home and in our hearts, something we frequently discuss how we frequently go to prayer, how we frequently praise the Lord. This ought to be our desire, not just that we can check the box that we did family worship, but to have the word of God permeate and infect all of life. And lastly, our private worship. We each have the opportunity every single day to sit at Christ's feet and listen to his teaching, to posture ourselves like a good student, a true disciple. So do we avail ourselves of that opportunity? Do we take the opportunity day by day to wake up like Christ and hear the words Lord, to make requests of him, to choose him as our good, good portion? Now, if you're anything like me, you recognize that we all fail in each of these areas frequently. Our corporate worship often finds our hearts cold. We lack consistency in loving God with our families. We lack the desire in the mornings. We hit the snooze button. We crowd our days so full. And we see, I want this, but I'm so weak in the flesh. And we recognize that we constantly get our portions wrong. We constantly all choose lesser things. But this is why we're Christians. This is the beauty of the gospel because Christ never failed to choose the proper portion. 
Christ never failed to daily learn of the Father, to daily set the Lord before him, to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Christ is the one that's paid for all our lack of worship. He's paid for all our lack of love. He's paid for all our coldness of heart. He's paid for all our inconsistency with our families. And this is so freeing. We don't worship God merely out of duty so that we can not feel guilty. He doesn't need it. He's all blessed and all glorious within himself. So we don't go thinking that we need to pay back something to God. He owns everything. He has the cattle on the thousand hills. No, it's a different motivation. It's entirely, entirely different. And so my goal, I don't want you to come away today thinking that you need to add new check boxes to your daily routine to stir up your self-discipline, to be more consistent in these things because that's the right thing to do. No, my hope is that in worship we will come to recognize that we will taste and see that God is good. We will recognize how valuable the good portion is and we will desire to partake of it. We will desire to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ because when you taste of Christ, you will want more, more of Christ, more of Christ, and you will come to him. You will sit at his feet and learn of him, not because you have to, but because you love him, because you treasure him, and because you want to glorify and enjoy him forever. Amen. Let's pray.